All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We're in Proverbs chapter 14, and we'll be picking back up around verse 17. Meditating on this theme that I think it's fair to generalize as slowing down and the wisdom of slowing down. Of course, we have a particular Christian view toward what this means, given that this is God's word and it's not general wisdom, it's specifically Christian wisdom. So we'll delve back into this topic after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Alright, so even if we glance back to, say, verse 15, that's a fair enough start, a place to start. The simple believes everything, the prudent gives thoughts to his steps. So in a sense, the fool rushes in. The prudent gives thought to his steps. So a like slow down to think about what you're doing or where you're going. Of course, the path here is also, are you on the path of life or the path of death? That's inferred. So as a Christian, give thought to your steps along the path of life, the narrow and difficult way. 16, one who is wise is cautious. So again, that idea of slowing down, of being cautious, of taking your time, of understanding what you're doing as you go through your life. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. You have to be cautious because evil doesn't always appear to be evil, does it? In fact, evil often masquerades as being good. And so if you're not cautious, you can go after something that appears to be good, only to find out it's not good or it's leading you off the path of life. And so being cautious can preclude that. Being cautious can also preclude you from going too far down a path once you discover it's not the right way. Being cautious, slowing down. So in contrast then, latter half of 16, but a fool is reckless and careless. Seventeen, a man of quick temper. So there again is the the speediness, the rashness in view of those who are not Christian, unwise. That we can also view this as the way our sinful nature is. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices or wicked intentions is hated. So he acts foolishly. He also ends up hated by others. All right, and then 18, I think, is the new material, if I'm not mistaken. The simple, that is the sense of the foolish, inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. So the idea that, and we've seen this expressed in a number of ways in the Proverbs, that wisdom isn't just good for the wise person. 
It is that, but it's also good for those around him. And here, it's good for his children and his children's children. So the contrast is that a simple person receives as his inheritance, that is his gift, what's given him, is folly. So when you think about giving, when you think about your inheritance, what inheritance are you leaving? The the one of least importance is your money. <laughs> That's the one of least importance. When you think of your inheritance, what are you bequeathing your children in terms of their spiritual inheritance? And again, fools receive folly. And the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But thankfully, that works the other way too. That the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The gift or inheritance they receive is that of a crown and a crown of knowledge. There's a royalty here, uh, obviously, with the crowning. And that reminds us that we're sons and daughters of the king, that we're part of the royal family of God, that baptized into his family as his children, we truly are royal and crowned in a way that those who reject him are clearly not. So there's a lineage of prudence, a lineage of wisdom that the Bible speaks of, and that's the natural way, and that's part of our stewardship as individuals. When we see our place in life, it's maybe your parents passed down to you folly, maybe they passed down to you a crown of knowledge. Be that as it may, you want to look at what you can pass on to your children, to your children's children, and to those around you. Make sense? Okay. So, prudent, simple, big picture type stuff. You know, it's remarkable too, just one more tangent. It's remarkable too, when you read the scriptures, maybe if you read them with an eye toward this particular thing, you'll see that sometimes a very small decision or a very small act of faithfulness in the immediate context has almost a butterfly effect in terms of its profundity down the line. So that's something also to take heart in. There are other passages of Scripture that speak more clearly to this point. It's something to uh, take courage and take heart and realize that don't buy into the nihilism of our age. Nothing matters. Nothing that you do matters. It's all insignificant. It's all not going anywhere. It's just not true. And sometimes very small acts of faithfulness have huge downstream effects. And even when we think, well, I don't know, if, you get, if we get to a despairing, spiritually ill kind of point, well, what's it matter if I apostatize? Well, how many thousand thousands are in the line after you, of whom you have no clue who are going to apostatize also because you did, and who are going to be cut off because you just threw away your birthright for whatever stew was held out in front of you that appeared to be better, like Esau. So keep that in mind, too, that as Christians, we're living not just for ourselves, nor only for our neighbors in terms of our contemporary neighbors, but for people we haven't even conceived of or thought of generations down the line. Okay, at 19, here's a thought-provoking one. The evil bow down before the good, the wicked at the gates of the righteous. Is this always the case? It's just universally true. (laughs) 
No, in fact, it's kind of one of the illusions that's common to us as Christians, of which our Father has to tenderly break. And that's, if we do the right thing, we're going to get rewarded in this life. If we are the good guys, then we should be guaranteed that the good guys always win. (laughs) But all too often, it's not the case. So we can reflect in ways in which this proverb isn't true or doesn't seem to be true. And that's fine. That's the nature of the proverbs. They're generalizations. They're observations. They're meant to be pondered. What about in an absolute sense? The evil bow down before the good. So if we think of our Lord's words that there is none who is good but God, Is the day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, not only the one true God, but his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ? Right. So in that sense, 100%, the evil will bow down before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. And then it does so happen that from time to time, this is the case in life as well. One example of this from the scriptures is, coincidentally from our Old Testament lesson today, is the story of Joseph. And it's the climax of that story, when his brothers, who have done wickedly against him, selling him into slavery, saying that uh, to his father that he was dead, that he was killed by an animal. These who have done evil end up bowing down before him, before Joseph, just as his dream long ago foretold. And as they bow down before him, he has opportunity to forgive them and bless them and be reconciled uh, to those who had done great evil to him. His, his wonderful line, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And indeed, that's true. So that kind of ties in with the previous point I was making, that what is a very severe I don't mean to diminish it, a very severe family squabble ends up functioning for at least uh, who knows how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people being saved from famine. So you look at that little family and what happened with Joseph, and God had lined that up so that Joseph could interpret the dreams of Pharaoh so that the Pharaoh would realize there are seven years of plenty. Remember the seven, uh, it's the seven fat calves and then the seven skinny calves. So there's seven years of plenty, seven years of destruction. And in the dream, the seven skinny eat up the seven fat. So is this familiar to you? Am I making this up? Okay, good. So then this, this little family squabble, again, not trying to diminish it, and them selling their brother into slavery ends up so that Pharaoh stores seven years' worth of food, which saves countless lives in Egypt, but in all the surrounding areas, uh, the family of Joseph included. So you never know how one act of faithfulness, one act of defiance against nihilism, might have profound fruit in the present or in the future. And think how easy it would have been for Joseph to despair. Going from the favorite, youngest, the baby of the family with the special coat and everything. I don't know, as the oldest, I get a little bitter toward 
Joseph sometime. <laughs> Telling everyone he's had this dream about how wonderful he is and everyone will bow down. I don't know, maybe he kind of deserved to get thrown into a pit. No. <laughs> yeah, he goes from this elevated status to down in the pit, sold into slavery. He's raised up in Potiphar's house. He defies the advances of Potiphar's wife. Do you remember this? Now, for being good, is he rewarded? Nope. He's cast all the way down back into jail. So with Joseph, you have these great big swings, but you have him not falling into despair. You have him not giving up on God, not giving up on life, not saying, oh, woe is me, poor me, this is lousy. Where's the next Egyptian God I can worship? Where's the nearest you know, brothel I can visit, just living in sin. He's faithful to God no matter what comes, whether good or bad. He's faithful in crucial moments, even at his own expense. So he's cast into prison. And even from there, he's raised up once more. Not now again in the house of Potiphar, but in the house of Pharaoh, in the second in command, that he can be in a position to bestow the wealth of that land and the food of that land upon those who are, who are otherwise going to starve to death, his brothers and family, etc. Okay, so the evil bow down before the good. It does happen. The wicked at the gates of the righteous, and of course it will happen when we think of the good one, Christ, the righteous one, Christ, and how every knee will in fact bow, whether they like it or not. Okay, any reflections on... Anything that's been said so far? Any questions? Comments? Let's keep going. 20. Again, you'll see the observational aspect of this proverb. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich man has many friends. That invites some thought, invites some exploration. Okay, why does the rich man have many friends? Because he's rich. <laughs> Pays to be friends with certain people. And, you know, it just doesn't hit the same when you have to bring your own beer or you go over to their house and they've got an array of cakes all lined up in their special man room, you know. So it pays to be friends with wealthy people. So that's, that's a, a crass observation, but a generally true observation. How about the poor being disliked even by his neighbor? If you're poor, you've got nothing to give. So there's at least that, and maybe you want to take. There's just no merit. Boy, is that a beautiful thing? Is that a beautiful aspect of our, of our fallen world? <laughs> no, probably not. So maybe we think in terms of subversion of this. When Jesus talks about... Remember, he's... Now... He, we can't take this out of context, but remember he's at the house of a Pharisee. They've invited him over for hamburgers after church. But it's really hostile. They're there to entrap him. They're there to see what things they can get him to say that are wrong. And they're going to put him out of favor with the people or the religious leaders. So it's a perilous place in which he's speaking. Jesus, dauntless, goes right after the host and says, When you throw a feast... Don't invite your friends or your neighbors or the wealthy, lest they repay you. But instead, invite the poor, the needy, and depending upon the version, I think the sick, the lame. That idea. 
So that's an interesting, that teaching of Jesus is an interesting way of reading this proverb that this is an unfortunate reality in a sinful fallen world and it's something to be subverted. To be the neighbor who invites and honors the poor rather than dislikes the poor. And maybe, just maybe, to scorn the rich man and treat the rich man no different than you treat the poor man, which, of course, he's going to perceive as scorn because no one ever treats me like that. You mean like a normal dude? Right. Sorry. (laughs) Now, you can think of this in also New Testament context. Explicitly, in James' epistle to the church, he tells the pastors not to treat the rich with favor and that it's completely biased when they say to a wealthy man who comes into the congregation, hey, you take the place of honor and tell the poor person, move, move over. You got, you got to go sit in the balcony. You got to sit all the way in the back with the kids. So James addresses this from a pastoral perspective and it's that same idea that, that the poor and the rich as they're treated in the world, are treated differently within the church and within the kingdom of God. Okay, I see a hand in the back. Please share uh, wit, wisdom, commentary experiences. Um, I think it goes deeper than that when you help people who want to rub noses and shoulders with rich people, it's because they feel this enhances their um, their view of themselves and of those around them. Yeah. And why would you want to be with the poor? Because that would kind of designate you as somebody that's one of those. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of it here, you know. I hate to say it, but there is. Oh, is there Not here in, in Orange County, California? Yeah, I hadn't. I've seen it here and there. Yeah, <laughs> on rare occasion. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I've even seen it in the church. You know. Oh. It, not this not one. Not this per church, se. of course. No, right. Not this no. one. No sinners exist here. No, no sinners. Right. <laughs> but I think it goes deeper than that. I think it's like they ha- they can entertain a higher view of themselves if they only are around the yeah. great, powerful, and uh, you know, hail fellow well met. And yeah, if they yeah. go to the poor, if they hang with the poor, then their view of themselves gets tarnished. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a, well, you get that in all the wit and wisdom of the so-called financial gurus and everything else, you know, to hang out with people who are wealthier than you and smarter than you and more successful than you. You know, the idea is you, it's kind of a a twisting of that idea of you are the company you keep, which it is of some value, of course, when we say, to our, say that to our kids because they're hanging out with the wrong crowd. But the inverse of that is not necessarily true. Or if it's true, it's not always true in the way that people want it to be true. They think if I hang out with rich people, I'll be rich. If I hang out with smart people, I'll be smart or something like that. Of course, that just leads, again, to the biblical reflection of what is wise and foolish. So you can be really, really smart, really, really successful. You can have degrees from all kinds of prestigious universities. You can have started and sold 15 different companies. You can be so wealthy you don't even care about money. You can be so successful. And you can be, in the scripture's eyes, a fool. 
more foolish than a little child that simply believes in the Lord. So we want to reflect on that aspect too whenever we consider what is wise in the eyes of the world, what is right in the eyes of a man relative to how the Lord sees it. Very different. So what would that be then if you applied that aspect? Surround yourself with Christians. So you may not find many wise according to the world's standards, many of noble birth, not many wealthy, not many super successful, but you will find people who are wise with the wisdom of the Lord, who fear the Lord and have thus begun their path and way, in the way of life and the way of wisdom. Okay, anything else on that one? I don't know. These, these uh, Proverbs really invite reflection, don't they? Taking different angles, thinking about it. They're not meant to, uh, they're not meant to be done in five minutes or 15 minutes. It's the kind of thing that you ruminate on. All right. 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner... But blessed is he who is generous, more literally merciful, to the poor. Ah, so there we do have an inversion. If you read this 20 and 21 together, the poor is disliked by his neighbor, and then whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. The rich man has many friends, probably because he's generous to them, but blessed is he who is generous rather to the poor. All right, I don't know that we need to reflect on that since it's more or less the same idea, differently framed. 22, do they not go astray who devise evil? Hmm. Those who devise good meet steadfast love. That's the kesed from the sermon last week and unfaithfulness from the text last week, the steadfast love of the Lord and faithfulness. So again, this is, this is pause for reflection as God's people. Do you want to be one who devises evil or one who devises good? And to devise good is to be on the side of the Lord. It's to meet with his steadfast love and faithfulness. Indeed, it flows from his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the only way in which we can be renewed to devise good, but then it redounds back in returning to his steadfast love and faithfulness. Very different than those who devise evil who end up going astray. And that often bears itself out. Now, media and social media do a wonderful job of telling a fantastic lie because you only follow the people when they're successful. The cameras shut off, the social media accounts shut down, and you don't actually see what's going on behind the scenes, let alone what happens one year, five years, ten years down the line. So the media continues to just, by its nature, this is what we mean by, you know, you think of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. This is what we mean of by the world. Okay? It's the sum total of what human society in a given time and place is pumping into us. 
and the lies it's telling us and the false religion it's presenting us. And one of those is that there's no consequences to, for those who devise evil. They don't go astray. Everything works fine. See, I'm doing evil. Where are the lightning bolts? There are none. You can do evil too is the implication. God doesn't care. God doesn't see. God has bigger fish to fry anyway or there is no God. Take your pick. So that's the kind of lie we see in our culture. But as you track this along, very often it is the case that even in this life, uh, the wicked go astray and that bears itself out in one way, shape, or form. If it doesn't, they most, they most certainly will see that they've gone astray when they meet with the Lord in judgment. Okay, and sometimes that takes faith. It takes faith to believe that the good... I mean, it seems like no good deed goes unpunished, so it takes faith sometimes to believe that the good meet steadfast love and faithfulness, and it takes faith to believe that those who devise evil do in fact go astray and do in fact suffer the consequences of their evil. Because it's not always immediately apparent. Okay, yep, yep, please. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to back up for a minute and go back to verse 21. Please. Um, about despising uh, his neighbor, being generous to the poor. It, just, it makes me consider, and I realize there are more complexities involved in this issue, but when we see someone homeless on the street or someone begging, um, and also the other passages that talk about what you've done to the least of these Right, and how we kind of work through some of the complexities of our modern time, but also reflect on this aspect of the scripture where there is supposed to be a measure of generosity. Mm-hmm. Curious about your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a complicated topic. And complicated in particular because of the societal impact that what we say has. You know, in a society that's so sick, we're not only permitting this but encouraging this behavior the Christian response has to be even more nuanced I think that it's the case that if we had a truly godly ruler the godly ruler would say to the homeless here is your program to get back on your feet and be a functioning part of society here is your ticket to the asylum or here's your ticket to the island where you can go be a drug addict and be lazy and steal and pilfer and live in your tent and do whatever you want to do. You get those three choices, but you don't get the choice of dragging down all of society. You don't get the choice of destroying our cities. You don't get the choice of living off of the welfare of hardworking people. You don't get the choice of being a drag and a dra- and, and a dra- uh, sorry, I'm losing my words here. Uh, an anchor dragging us down and drowning us as a, as a people. So those are your options. Which do you choose? And maybe one will have to be chosen for you. I think that that's probably what a godly ruler would do and should do in our land. And then the Christian response can accommodate that and accommodate that with less nuance. So that's part of what we're dealing with, is we don't know if we're dealing with a homeless person who's homeless because they're completely down on their luck and would get on their feet if they could. I I tend to think personally that's very, very rare. Uh, Or we're dealing with people who have mental illness 
and have a legitimate need for uh, institutionalization and care. It's probably also why our prisons are so full. They're filled with the mentally ill, which is, is that humane? Probably not. And then there are a good portion of people who are just lazy and just, I mean, there, there was an interview, and I've referred to this. I mean, this kind of liberal guy drives up in his BMW and is, you know, talking to this homeless guy. And this homeless guy's like, go back to your job. <laughs> I'm perfectly content to sit outside my tent on my lawn chair. I've got free food whenever I want it. I've got, no, I've got no job. I've got no clock. I've got no stress. I've got no pressure. I've got no bills. I've got no nothing. I've got my tent and my lawn chair. Go back to work. So there's a fair amount of those two, and of course that gets turned into panhandling. And uh, there's there's a fair amount. I, I, again, I don't think that this gets much media attention at all, but I think that there's a, a ton of uh, oh, what do you call it? Um, it's not it's not always, but uh, but frequent enough. I'm sure it is the human trafficking that relates uh, to sexuality and sexual exploitation. But there's trafficking in begging, too. So circles will, uh, and maybe I mean, probably someone in this room knows more about it than I, but I've seen this firsthand, where the pimp drives up and collects what was just handed over to the woman and her two children. So there's a kind of exploitation that's going on there, too. So in what sense do you feed into that? That's why it's always a complicated, nuanced answer for us as Christians in this current society. Um, There is no easy answer. Now, when you have somebody who, you know, before you, as best as you can tell, is just legitimately poor, legitimately mentally ill, the Bible then, almost completely on the other side of the coin, is like, be gracious and don't even think about it. I think we're going to even hit a proverb that's like, uh, you don't want to give because they're going to spend it on drink. Well, what do you spend yours on? Don't you ever have a drink? <laughs> which is kind of a fun view. I mean, it's kind of the view that if you've ever given money and felt like you've been taken, which for me is about every time I've given money, um, you can just be like, well, whatever. You know, right? Don't we all from time to time abuse what God gives us? Are we always perfect stewards? Do we ever use things simply for our enjoyment, simply for our relief? Do we ever use things irresponsibly for a quick relief and quick joy as opposed to a long-term betterment? Yeah, all the time. So let's, you know, in that sense, not be on our high horse when we give to others and then, you know, you give to somebody and see them going off to the liquor store. It's like, well, good on you, my friend. I mean, you know, there is that aspect expressed in the scriptures. So, I, and I like it because it just kind of frees you up from all the consternation and nuance that I was formerly talking about. Just sometimes it's just good to be generous, no strings attached. Whatever. There you go. Yeah. Does that help? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Well, I think having certain experiences in life, too, where you work with the larger public and you work with these people, you have a, a different view, too. We, from time to time, get um, folks here at the church, and anytime we've given, I'm like 100% certain we're just being taken. And very frequently, you'll notice this because they'll ask for something like, hey, I need $300 for the night at a hotel. And you'll say something like, okay, well, let's get to that in a minute. Will you sit down and talk to me about Jesus? And of course the answer is, 
absolutely not, or indignant that you would dare waste their time. (laughs) Or if you say, I'm going to tell you no right now, but I'd like to have a conversation with you. Immediately it's like, well, if your answer is no, I'm off. They don't say to the next church, but that's precisely where they're off to. They just realize you're not an easy mark. So it, is, it has been fascinating for me to just sort of throw up a quick, gentle test as to the legitimacy of the person asking me for money and to watch how quickly they turn indignant. And though they profess to be a Christian or to have been a Lutheran at some point in their life, instantly Satan's out and about right through their flesh as they're cursing and muttering and yelling and trotting off because you didn't simply give them $300 on the spot because they said they were Christian. So that's something to, uh, you know, reflect on as well. Okay, so maybe where, maybe where this is um, more concrete for us too is amongst our family or close friends. Sometimes giving is not the right thing to do because you're furthering a bad habit. Uh, but sometimes it is because everybody else is turning their back and um, unwilling to help and you're in a position to help, so you do. Maybe you're taken, maybe you're not. Who cares? All right, good to move on? Yeah. Okay. So I think that takes us to 23. In all toil there is profit. What a great, what a great statement. But mere talk tends only to poverty. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. The nature of my work tends to be a little more white-collar than blue-collar. But there's plenty of blue-collar aspect about it. In toil, in all toil, there is profit. Uh, Sometimes you write a sermon and you don't preach that sermon. Or you write four sermons and you only get to preach one. But that, to me, as the years have gone on, you're not wasting any time. You're learning texts, you're reflecting, you're learning what's right and wrong, what works and what doesn't work. Sometimes you can't quite complete the puzzle, so you're just leaving it aside. But later on, you find the pieces and that puzzle does get completed. And I wonder if that isn't a, a microcosm for how all of life is, that as we engage in our labors, it's always good. If nothing else, even at the gritty level of self-discipline and uh, physical labor is good for you and good for me and good for us as people. So I, I reflect on this very positively, that in all toil there is profit even when there doesn't appear to be. Even when it's this idea of like, no, that was squandered, that was a waste, look at what you built, now it's been knocked down, or look at what you constructed, now it's been lit on fire. There's something to be said for the work itself, for the toil itself as being profit. And I'll just point this out, and then maybe we'll move on, that even in the Garden of Eden, where everything was good, there was work. The man was put to work in the garden. Their work is of itself good and is something we've been created to do. And you may have experienced this where you go, okay, that's it. I'm going to go on vacation. I'm not going to do any work. You actually turn pretty miserable pretty fast. And you actually turn into pretty, you start turning toward bad habits real fast too. Well, I'm not going to work today. Well, what am I going to do? Watch a terrible movie and drink a beer? 
<laughs> Great, that was real healthy. And maybe you do that and it's fine, but then you go, well, how about another one? How about another one? Well, it's two in the morning, how about another one? And you sleep in till one or two and then you feel like crap and then you do it again because you're too tired to do it. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, You've just kind of disintegrated into this, what you thought was pleasure and fun and not working. In the end, you're like, gosh, it would have been better if I just kept my head screwed on straight and just took it a little easier, but kept up with my work. I mean, I even, I even have that sense when you go on vacation. You probably do too. And you go on vacation, and of course, like, the world just stops when you go on vacation, right? So when you get back, you just pick back up, right? You know, no. It just keeps going like a river, and you, you get back from vacation. You just got to get caught up and get back in the stream, and sometimes that's more effort and labor than the vacation was. So anyway, there's my slightly countercultural rant on all of that. Vacations are good, but I, but I, am, I, I am fond of this. And yeah, we can become workaholics, and we should be worried about that to some degree in our country, to be sure. Um, but this idea that uh, there's, in all toil, there's profit, I really like it. Is it really 6.06? Am I in a dream? <laughs> Both clocks say it. 10.06-ish? 10, okay. You wouldn't believe how many church dreams pastors have. You get up in the pulpit and you look down and you can't read the text. You can't remember the gospel. <laughs> and you just sit there and watch as everybody stands up and leaves. Those are the nightmares I have. All right, let's see. So then, uh, 24, look at, how this is, uh, look at how this is contrasted with what's gone on before in regard to the rich. <laughs> the crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. Interesting. Interesting. It invites different aspects of thought in, and it's not at all straightforward, especially in context. The crown of their wise of the wise is their wealth. Well, what precisely is their wealth? I doubt it's monetary in nature, given the context. And that seems to be all the more certain in the second half, where it's contrasted not with the poverty of fools but with the folly of fools bringing more folly it's an interesting one it's one worth chewing on here's what the commentary says a single sentence let me make sure of that This verse contrasts wisdom, which furnishes its own reward, with stupidity, which never offers any reward. There you have it. Okay, 26. We start tying back into major themes and theses of Proverbs. Anytime we talk of the fear of the Lord, and when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're really talking about faith in the Lord. So, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. And then again, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. 
So bringing to our mind that what's being spoken of here is not worldly wisdom or worldly wealth, as if these are blessings in and of themselves, but godly wisdom, godly wealth, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of such wisdom, the beginning of such wealth. And the fear of the Lord um, in it, one has strong confidence. So in faith toward the Lord and in fear that he can do whatever he wants and in him you're safe no matter what, that's the strong confidence. And that's the refuge that he bequeaths to his children while they're in his house and after they're out of, their, out of his house. And then again, 27, the fear of the Lord in some ways parallel, is a fountain of life. It was just a, an amazing statement. To be, a, to be fearful of the Lord, to be in awe of His majesty, His holiness, His graciousness, His mercy, His conquering sin, His conquering death. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That is to say, one can go and draw life again and again. One can drink and have life within himself. And likewise, then, that life amounts to the end that one may turn away from the snares of death. So to continually be refreshed in the fear of the Lord, to continually have confidence and have your confidence strengthened in the fear of the Lord, to know that he is God and he will be true. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, Pastor, I had a question about Adam and the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, in all toil, there's profit. I was just thinking about how Adam and Eve didn't have a difficult conversation when they were asked, what did you do? They said, maybe that is mere talk that le- led to poverty when they blamed someone else instead mm. of doing the... I, it seems like, I, I don't know, words can also be hard or easy. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then just what Adam had to pass on to his children because of the wealth that he gave up. Yeah, yeah, passing on a curse, passing on folly. That kind of folly that is vanity or meaninglessness in Ecclesiastes, mm-hmm. which is a meditation on the fall and a meditation on the curse in many ways. Yeah, yeah. you never escape the, uh, the thorns and the thistles and the sweat of the brow. And it's one of the, one of the challenges we have in our society is people trying to escape that but you're unable to escape that no matter what you know there's no there's no magical vocation where you escape that i had i even had to learn that lesson as a pastor because you think well i'm a pastor i'm studying god's word it's all going to come easily oh no 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 there's all kinds of thorns and thistles and sweat of your brow and why isn't this working and why isn't this sermon coming together or why are my efforts in this area of pastoral administration or care not working and yeah there's all kinds of uh, thorns and thistles that infect everything we do and that too um, we have to pray that God as the psalmist teaches will prosper the work of our hands because you can work and work you can you can have all the skill in the world and do whatever you, you know, what objectively should be done and it's not going to prosper unless the Lord prospers it so reflection there too on the nature of the work the work's good itself whether it prospers or not is another question and that's in the hands of God and even in the spreading of the gospel it's that way we get, we get all wrapped around the axle all insecure and then we buy into all kinds of nonsensical ideologies as the church when we don't pay attention to this because Paul reflects that he plants Paulus waters, but it's God who gives the growth. 
So if God doesn't give the growth, is the planting invalid? Is the watering invalid? No, that's what they were sent to do. They accomplished the task. Whether or not there's growth is in God's hands. So did they faithfully plant? That's the question. Did they faithfully water? That's the question. Not is there a growth? And so very frequently what the church, false teachers within the church will say is, well, if there's not growth, then God's not there and so it's not real planting or it's not real watering, so then what is? And then you lick your finger, put it to the wind, whatever society is doing, whatever the church of what's happening now is doing, and you just infiltrate that, which always and without fail is unfaithful. <laughs> That's the trap. Okay, so the fear of the Lord. Anything else we want to reflect on? Um, John, one, one last comment here. on a um, is I not you said you, we can safely interpret the fear as faith in the Lord in the Old Testament Hebrew um, so in the, I mean as a general rule I'd say yes but particularly here in Proverbs as we've looked at the fear of the Lord is synonymous with faith yeah all right yeah it helps yeah absolutely by the way so is love for the Lord biblically uh, to love the Lord to obey the Lord um, these are all synonyms for faith we, we tend to think of those as law words but that's because we've paid more attention to these categories than, we're, than we've paid attention to what the Bible actually says uh, in context these kinds of words all the time are used synonymously for faith yeah great question alright the Lord be with you